Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast, America's number one source for smarter, safer, more profitable investing, where we aim to bring you the very best ideas from the very best minds in the business, completely filter-free. I am your host, Charles Sizemore. We got a fantastic show planned for you today. I'm going to start by bringing on my friends Mike Carr, Adam O'Dell, and Ian King to talk about the great silicone shakeout and how you can make potentially a lot of money from it. We're then going to go around the horn to discuss the stock that everyone loves or maybe just loves to hate. Um, kind of hard to say. It's, it's probably the most, uh, no, probably. It is the single most controversial stock of my lifetime. We're going to go around the horn and give a big emphatic thumbs up or thumbs down to Tesla, the electric vehicle leader headed by the enigmatic and perhaps crazy Elon Musk. We're then going to uh, go a different direction here. We're going to take your questions, or not so much take, but answer your questions. Uh, we, we take, a, that's something we, we get a lot of value from. Uh, we really wanna know what's on your mind and we really do our best to answer those questions. So with that, let's get into it. But before I do, I just say a quick word to keep the guys in suits happy. Do remember that uh, these are our opinions. We're just four guys having a chat here. This should not be uh, taken as specific investment advice. Do please read below to uh, read our full disclaimer there. Now, on to the show. Let's talk about the great silicone shakeout. So we're in a bear market, and it's been particularly nasty for tech for well over a year now. Now, for a lot of investors, that's scary. That's you, know, you see the market falling, you think this is bad for me, but that's not necessarily true. Some of the greatest fortunes in history have actually been made taking the other side of that. Now, I'm sure a lot of our viewers have seen the movie The Big Short, of course, that starred Brad Pitt, Christian Bale. Christian Bale in particular played a hedge fund manager that has since become a bit of a household name, Mike Burry. Mike Burry was actually a long-only trader for most of his career. He was a fantastic hedge fund manager in that small-cap, micro-cap space. But we don't know him because of that. He was a nobody. He was a very successful investor, but he was a nobody. No one knew who he was until the big short. Yeah, he, he made a fortune for himself and his investors betting against the mortgage market. Of course, John Paulson was essentially in on a very similar trade. He had the biggest short position or biggest short profit in history. Going to go further back, you know, Jim Chanos made a name for himself shorting Enron, which was the biggest financial scandal in history up to that point. If you're going to go way back in time. You can go back to the days of Jesse Livermore, the, the legendary trader who some still considered the greatest trader of all time. He made $100 million or more in the 1929 crash, translated into today's dollars. I believe that number is well in excess of a billion. So Clearly, there is money to be made on the short side. And to talk about that, Mike, let's start with you. Like, you're, you're a trader. You, uh, you take both sides of the trade. You know, how, how has short selling worked out for you? Well, I want to go back with another example of 1992, George Soros. George Soros, still right. a household name. And he made a fortune. He made a billion dollars in one day betting against the Bank of England. And the legend is he broke the bank. Now he started taking his position early that summer, 1992. And by the time it actually worked out for him, 
he had kept doubling down, doubling down. He had over $10 billion in exposure to the British pound when it finally broke. So he made a 10% return in one day. Um, you know, the, if the pound had continued higher another week, Soros probably wouldn't have survived. He would have had a margin call. He would not be a leading political funder, and the world would be vastly different. So shorts have made history. And I think that's important to remember that these short traders have an element of luck to them. You mentioned Mike Burry. Talk about a lucky guy. He was shadowing SBF when the whole thing collapsed. So he now has movie rights to SBF from the inside. He's not making I, money. I think that's that Michael show. Lewis, not Michael Burry. Oh, I'm sorry. Michael, I it was Michael Lewis <laughs> wrote the book about Michael Burry. But yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Yeah. So what a lucky guy. Could you imagine being in the compound as it was unfolding? Yeah. Yes. So anyway, back to Soros in 1992. It takes a lot of money to go short. It takes a lot of risk to go short. Many short traders in 1996 saw that the NASDAQ was in a bubble. If you remember Alan Greenspan, December 96 said, it's irrationally exuberant. It gained 400%. Mike, that, that's a great point. Everyone imagines the irrat everyone remembers the irrational exuberance comment, but they forget that Greenspan made that in 96. He didn't make it in 99 when it was about to break. It was actually several years before. And there were an awful lot of people who lost money on the right side in the long run, but shorting requires, you know, perfect timing. So rather than going short, I think there are ways to do it. Obviously, options. Put option, you know, you're not going to end up having $10 billion in exposure like George Soros did. You're not going to end up with all of this risk exposure. So right now we're at the point where we're irrationally exuberant in some sectors, in particular tech. If we look at the last jobs report, tech's the only one that really suffered losses. Uh, we saw job gains everywhere except information technology and temporary services. And I think it's a pretty well-known secret. Tech companies use a lot of tech, uh, temp workers, um, sure. saves on various benefits. So we're seeing that that sector is already contracting. It is going to be the place to be this year selectively. Some of these companies are going to be like Greenspan in 1997. He's going to say, forget about it. They're going to shoot higher. So you want to have a balanced portfolio in the sector. And I think you want to keep that in mind. Not all tech is going to zero, um, but a large number sure. are. Well, that's a bit sobering, but not necessarily. If, if, if you're playing that side of the trade, that's not a bad thing at all. And actually about that, in Banyan Edge, our e-letter, which if you're not reading, you definitely should be. Uh, Adam, you recently wrote, uh, you actually recently, you're a very modest guy. You don't like to brag about yourself. So I will actually do that for you. You, you, uh, you mentioned that you had bet against a major name in tech and within really just weeks, you had already taken a profit of about 69% on one third of that position, but you still have the remaining two thirds of that trade on that you're still letting that rip. What's uh, what was the story with that? What can you tell us? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a sentiment story. Um, you know, basically, there were a lot of names that ran up in the recovery from COVID uh, in 2021 that just basically ran up on pure momentum and pure sentiment. And I'm certainly a momentum guy, but I realized that at the end of the day, these momentum trends uh, do run out of steam. And, and this was really a story stock. I don't want to talk about it just yet because we do have the trade open. Um, but yeah, I'm expecting anywhere from 400% to 1600% gains on this short. Um, you know, more stepping back, you know, more philosophically, I, I found in my career, a lot of retail, a lot of regular investors don't like shorting stocks. Uh, for one, it seems kind of, well, for one, it goes against the long-term uh, bullish bias of stocks. And I'm kind of an 80-20 guy, you know, 80% of the time, I'm more than happy to make money on the long side of the market. I'm a cautious optimist. I do know that bull markets or, you know, stocks tend to uh, be in bull markets longer and for uh, greater gains than in shorts. But you do have to look for these points of asymmetry uh, where, where the market has is all leaning to one side and there's kind of an asymmetry. Um, you know, earlier this year in one of my option trading services, I saw that small cap stocks um, basically made a bullish breakout in late 2021 from this big, long sideways pattern. But then the, the bullish breakout lasted like a couple of weeks and then it came right back down into the pattern and made a bearish break down from the bottom of that channel. And so that to me was a sign that, um, you know, the, the bull market was ending and that small cap stocks were going to take it on the chin initially. So we made a couple uh, bets against small cap stocks. Uh, we also made a bet against uh, Spanish stocks during the, the energy crisis uh, in the in the spring and summer of, of uh, 2022. So there are ways to make. Um, and, and the other thing to realize is you don't have to short shares of stock. I mean, that is one of the riskier and, and more costly ways to bet against um you know, bet against stocks, but Mike kind of mentioned earlier that buying put options is a risk limited way to do it with unlimited potential. But ultimately, I think that there's a role for short selling in the market. I mean, it, you don't want a one sided market where you can only buy. I mean, the, you, you want price discovery, you want uh, buyers and sellers and to, to determine a fair price. Um, I remember at the end of 2021, I was listening to a podcast, uh, it was on, on crypto. And this is nothing against crypto generally. It's just obviously gone through a bear market in the winter right now. But yeah, at the end of 2021, everybody thought it was like a one-way market. And I remember like Nick Carter, the, the guy that uh, was a big proponent, uh, founder of Coinmetrics, I believe. Uh, he was talking on a podcast about how um, folks were trying to get a short Bitcoin ETF. And he kind of laughed. He was like, I don't know why anybody would want a short Bitcoin. And I was like, well... <laughs> I mean, if he, anybody that thinks that a market is a one-way trade is kind of delusional. I mean, you want people on both sides of the of the print. So uh, ultimately, I think that this is going to be, 2023 is going to be an environment uh, where short selling can be very effective. That said, you don't need to go out and short everything with high leverage. I mean, we are going to have a bear market bottom here at some point, and uh, things are going to rip higher, especially the low quality stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm being very selective in this market. You know, I remember your your trade on Spain. I, I remember when you you put that trade on, and I remember nobody else was really talking about that. Like you were really that was a, an opportunity you found that nobody was really talking about at the time, and I, I, that that really stuck with me. Um, anyway, uh, you know, Ian, I know we we think of you as more of the macro, big picture, you know, bullish um, you know, bullish growth guy. But I know that you're more opportunistic than that. I know you too have made money on the short side, and I believe uh, you kind of cut your teeth at, in the last financial crisis on the short side. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. So, uh, you know, to Mike's point, and also Adam was talking about this, the timing of shorting is very difficult. And that's why a lot of people don't engage in it. And I, I can, you know, recall from my experience, 
I put a big bet on in late 2006, early 2007, that we were going to have a financial crisis, uh, primarily because, you know, I used to work on the institutional trading uh, uh, credit desks at Citigroup and Solomon Brothers before that. And I knew that a lot of the products that we were underwriting back then, you know, were, were held up by... Um, uh, I would say the kind of risk that people were taking was a lot more than the reward they were getting for it. And it just seemed at the time that banks were really over levered to the housing market. Um, but I can tell you from experience is that I was wrong. I got my head handed to me for about a year before things went turned the right direction. So getting the timing right is very difficult. And I think another reason why people don't short uh, as often is because, as Adam said, the markets generally tend to go up over a long period of times. But you do have these very short, sharp corrections in bear territory, which can lead to huge drawdowns on your portfolio or amazing trades if you're on the short side. The one thing that I think has been missing from this bear market as compared to the other ones that I've I've seen is that the VIX has been relatively subdued. You know, if you even you go back to yeah. Uh, the COVID crisis, we had the VIX jump up to the 80s um, in, in 2015 when we had the, the sort of fracking shakeout. The VIX was uh, in the, the taper tantrum. The VIX was above 50. I can even show you this chart if you want to share it to viewers. 2009 or the financial crisis, the VIX got up close to 100. Uh, even going back to 2000, you know, during the dot-com bubble blow up, you had multiple times when the VIX crossed over 40. Another one was during 9-11. This time, you know, we've gotten to the mid 30s. So like the last year has kind of been more of an orderly sell off than anything. I know there's some structural reasons where people say, well, you know, there's a lot more um, uh, short dated option contracts and it's muting a lot of the volatility that you typically would see in the VIX. But, you know, I tend to think that we're going to have, like Mike says, some type of big sharp shakeout at some point this year, which is going to lead to an amazing opportunity for traders, but also give us a nice reset for a longer sustained rally over the next decade. Yeah, yeah they say that this time is different. It very rarely is. Um, yeah. If, if the, the, the volatility has been kind of absent, uh, apart from really about a year ago, it spiked, but it, you're right, over, over 2022, we really did not see volatility in line with the declines, which is unusual. Yeah. And also we had a number of, you know, heavily down days where we were down three to 5% in the market, but the fear, you know, of an unknown event just wasn't there. Like you would normally see in brutal bear markets. I mean, maybe it'll start to pick up as we get into the earnings seasons and companies are less transparent on how the year is going to go because of the impending economic recession. But, you know, so far we haven't really seen it. And I think a lot of people have faith in the Fed that whatever happens to the market, you know, the Fed put options still on the table. So we need to have like a belief that that is not going to be the case before we see a, a, a tradable bottom, I think, in the market. Yeah, the, the, on that the, point, the I think it's fan a, put. Oh, go ahead, Adam. I just think it's a keen observation that we didn't see VIX do anything in 2022. And, you know, bear markets and pullbacks and, um, you know, periods of, um, you know, weak price action, they have different characters. You can have a sideways um, you know, where, where basically time uh, does the damage rather than price. You can have a smooth and orderly pullback, which is basically what it's been in 2022. I think that, you know, heading into 2022, everybody was talking in 2021 about the, you know, the valuations and how they've just gone crazy. And I think institutional investors actually got ahead of that and realized that there was going to be compressions uh, in the uh, valuation multiples and kind of got light heading into 2022. And that's why we've seen, you know, pullbacks, but it's been rather orderly. We haven't really seen what I call a capitulation or, 
you know, excuse my uh, colorful language, but like a puke your brains out type of move, like you saw in that the <laughs> last three months of 2008. Um, but yeah, I mean, 2008 was kind of similar. It was like a steady grind lower for the first eight, nine, 10 months of it. And then everything fell out of the bottom uh, in the last three months. So, you know, right. I've been kind of preparing for a, a lower for longer uh, type of bear market. And, you know, you really want to see that capitulation, sell everything move to know that uh, the excesses have been washed out and the, the, the new bull market can actually begin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Mike, I know you have some thoughts on this because actually, and bear with me here, I'm going to share my screen. I used to make fun of my parents for being tech ignorant and uh, <laughs> I have effectively become my parents. Oh, no. Three minutes later. <laughs> you want to get your son in there to help you out, Charles? I may. He's, uh, he's actually playing video games. You can probably hear him screaming from the other room. But Mike, <laughs> you, you, were, you had this in an article you wrote in Banyan Edge last week. This shows that the, the NASDAQ 100 returns by year. And, you know, there, there are bear markets, you know, 2022, you see a big red line there. 2008, you see another big red line there, but there's one sort of outlier on the page. And yeah, I, you know, where I'm looking at, it's right dead center. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, before this, I want to go back to a point that Ian made here about the VIX. And what's interesting is VIX hits a seasonal low this week. The hmm. seasonality in VIX is huge spike coming in the next few weeks. And as Adam said, high to earnings. Yeah. Earnings season starts in earnest Thursday with some bank stocks. Friday next week, we get over 100 S&P 500 companies reporting. We have a problem potentially coming up here. Um, yeah, I mean, margins are out of sight. Yeah, companies are making you know an average of 13 cents on every dollar of sales. That cannot continue. Uh, Long-term average closer to eight. If margins contract, earnings fall, earnings growth suffers. It's a big reason to be worried. But to the chart, we had three negative years, 2000 to 2002. And then 2008, we had a really bad year, but the Fed came to the rescue. The Fed did stuff that seemed impossible to believe. They just started printing money. They started cutting interest rates lower and lower. In theory, uh, you know, let's say 2007, we're talking about interest rates. The theoretical low is the rate of inflation plus a small premium, you know, return on my money. 2008, we blew through that. There was no longer a theoretical limit on the downside. Uh, and that continued until 2022. The market peaked in 2022 at the time the Fed announced they were going to stop shoveling money into the economy. So the end of QE announcement, kind of a mini taper tantrum that has been now, um, I know we think of a tantrum as short-lasting. You guys have young kids. Um, <laughs> some tantrums never end. Um, some days. Depends how you address it, though. It depends how you deal with it. Yeah, that's where we are now. We are in the middle of a tantrum that's just not ready to end. Mm -hmm. And the average market falls 38.5% in a recession. Tech stocks being the hardest hit, consumer discretionary being the second hardest hit. Um, recently, a couple of years ago, the NASDAQ made an interesting choice. They lowered the amount of money a company has to pay to trade there. 
So they lowered the listing fees, they lowered the exchange fees, and companies like Pepsi moved over there. Um, so it's not just tech anymore on the NASDAQ 100. Starbucks is the NASDAQ 100. It's a tech company because of their app. Um, it's consumer discretionary. They make extremely expensive cups of coffee that we buy. But are we really going to continue to pay $7 for whatever they call it, a frap or whatever, if there's yes. a recession? <laughs> agreement that the answer is yes yeah i mean we might not be watching disney plus but i still be, will be drinking my starbucks <laughs> at least in the fall when they have the pumpkin spice latte exactly. that is my one guilty little pleasure that i wait for all year yeah and they're very good you know then they get the sugar cookie and the gingerbread cookies for christmas pretty soon we'll have some easter flavors rolling out so you know some valentine's surprise like Mike, Starbucks cups of coffee are very sticky. I, you know, it's, it, there's not much substitutes to it. And they got everyone roped in with the app. It just makes it so simple. So, you know, that, that would be one thing I think that 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 could do better than a recession than than people estimate. So, so, so pick a better example, Mike. Uh, so, so Starbucks yeah, I, limits. I personally <laughs> love the tough talk I'm hearing here from Ian with, who has young children at home, and I'll give up disney plus no you won't <laughs> I, I i knew you know i was being facetious on there of course that that's not gonna go but um yeah I mean, you might give up bread and water before you give up disney plus yeah <laughs> yeah uh, no i think that you may see a shift towards um the local coffee shops which generally have lower priced and better quality but that's another issue uh i know at the office there i always see those cups of starbucks on desks and there's some pretty good coffee shops closer than Starbucks. No, so, no, yeah, I agree. That. Yeah. So in 2000, we didn't have the Fed printing money. We didn't have 0% interest rates. That's a huge difference. From 1982 to 2022, interest rates fell. Mm -hmm. If we go back and look in time, we generally see about a 35 to 40-year cycle in interest rates. They rise for 35, 40 years. They fall for 40 years. That just ended. We are now potentially going to see interest rates rise for the rest of my lifetime. Um, we, we may all be dead by the time they start falling again. Yeah, you guys are a little younger, so you may see another interest rate down move, but you know, you're going to be in your rocking chair watching Disney Plus without any kids in the room at that time. So, <laughs> this is a great point, Mike, because, you know, I tend to agree the fact that we've had this benefit of declining interest rates and that's helped our economy. And a lot of that was spurred on by globalization, right? China opened up to the world in the late 70s, early 80s. You had uh, the Soviet Union crumbled and then you had more markets open up in Western Europe. And a lot of this benefited the idea that you could produce things for cheaper outside of the United States. And it shipped a lot of jobs offshore, including other treaties you made in the US like NAFTA, where we sent a lot of production down to Mexico. I, I, and I do see a reverse of that coming in the sense that we're trying to shore up our supply chains, bring companies and manufacturing back to the United States. And so because of that, it's probably going to put a, uh, a higher price on goods that we produce because we're no longer producing them in countries where 
you know, you can pay somebody in the Chinese factory a, a couple dollars an hour, whereas opposed in the United States with stronger unions and higher wages, it's different. And so structurally, it means that we probably are going to be in a situation where we're paying more for the price of goods. There's also another angle to this where bringing all this production back is going to increase automation, increase robotics. And we have, I think, at the time, you know, the ability to employ technology to do a lot more with less. And so there are two competing ideas here where I think in the short term, there's going to be higher interest rates because people are going to be worried about the structural problems of inflation, paying more people, paying higher wages. That also is a benefit to the U.S. economy. You're going to be paying people more wages, and they'll be able to buy more it things is. with this. It is. But then also, but, yeah. But <laughs> in our trading window here, mm -hmm. you're talking you're, you're talking about something that could be you know years in the future and, and will be like that that that's happening. But it's also years in the future. Well, I think this or, is going to be the biggest trade of the decade. You know, this is the biggest trend of the decade is the fact that production is moving away from these lower cost countries coming back to the United States. The most important thing to consider is really how much productivity grows on an annual basis. So, you know, for the last, since the industrial revolution, we've seen 2% productivity growth. You know, that's been the trend. We've seen a little bit more of an acceleration of it because of the information age. And I think with robotics and the idea that, you know, you can produce a factory with three workers and have like, you know, if you've already seen these Amazon factories, they're just, the robots are just doing all the work. That's going to get increasingly, you know, more popular, not just in tech companies like Amazon, but all throughout manufacturing. Um, and then also the impact of artificial intelligence on the media world and, you know, specifically what, what we do in content producers, being able to produce a lot more with less. So I think that's going to be another Ian, thing. And I have competing. one caveat to that. I have yeah. one very big caveat to that. Total factor productivity was inching up forever. And then it flatlined at the exact year the iPhone came out. Yeah, I know, because the people <laughs> spend half their day on Facebook, TikTok. <laughs> you know, we all know that it's at least something like six hours a day, the average American on their their phone. So but if you and look at like what's average. happening in tech, like, average, I think by the way, I think, I think average, Elon Musk is like more. showing the way how you can produce more with less. I mean, he fired, what, like 70% of the engineers at Twitter? And this thing still works. If anything, it's gotten faster. So I think that is kind of leads to like what the rest of tech is going to do, where like Amazon has doubled their job since 2019, the amount of people working for them. They've made cutbacks already. Facebook, uh, you know, labor uh, has grown to 50% more people. Uh, Ian, actually, hold that thought. I want to come back to that. That's good. I actually, you wrote about that last week and mm -hmm. like we, I want to cover that. But before we do that, uh, Mike, let's go back to you real quick. You were talking about, okay, like we mentioned things are different now, you know, but we, we went back 2000, 2002, we saw something very unusual, not what we're used to. You know, we're used to seeing a bear market. Then the next year things rebound. You have a bad year followed by a big recovery. That didn't materialize in the last big tech crash, 2000, 2002. Now, you're kind of suggesting that something along those lines is, is kind of is, is likely going forward. Why, why don't you kind of flesh that out a little bit more? Well, if, the big thing is the same points Ian's been hitting is you're going to have a shakeout, basically. You have you had 2,000 companies listed in the last five years. Coincidentally, you had 2,000 companies listed in the last five years before 2000. So, you know, I know that's just a coincidence, but you had too many companies come to market with 
basically in 19, late 1990s, if you added .com to your name, a venture capitalist would give you money and you could then become a company. A lot of dumb ideas got funded and there were a lot of dumb ideas to shake out. Same thing has happened in the last few years. A lot of SPACs just aren't making it. There's going to be a shakeout. They're going to drag down other companies with it. When FTX collapsed, it turned out there was this intricate web of companies that were going to go with it. We're going to see the same thing here. We're going to see robots in McDonald's. Um, but there's a lot of companies trying to be that robot maker. And there's only going to be one leader in the end. So, you know, they're going to carry that company to new highs and all the competition is going to go to the wayside. Um, that's the kind well, of thing. Like, that, that's a really good, that's a really good point. You know, you think like, who's the leader in search today? Well, it's Google. Fine. But go back to the early, early 2000s. There were like five different search engines, six different search engines that people regularly used. And I would struggle to even remember their names today. I remember Yahoo was around, there was one called Alta Vista or something. Alta Vista, Lycos, Infoseek. You don't remember these? Go.com. You have a better memory than I do. And so, <laughs> spent a lot of time on you. search engines, I guess. Well, but anyway, so did I. But like, but you know, what happens is, you know, they all fall by the wayside. Yeah, we're left with we're, we're left with you know Google won the race there, and I guess you have other ones being or whatever. But but it's really just Google, right? Because all, all these others were shaken out. So before I go any further, I do I do want to announce something. So Mike, you have a you're you're putting on a presentation on Thursday, and this is really a big deal because I've read I've read the notes beforehand. I I know what you're going to talk about, and I also know that I I plan to attend. So anybody watching this, please follow this link below. This is something you really do want to hear. Mike is going to lay out this, this shakeout hypothesis here. And more importantly, he's going to show you how you actually profit from it, how you turn this shakeout into one of the very best opportunities of potentially the next several years. But this is a big deal. You really don't want to miss this. Now, Ian, going back to you, I, you wrote this piece last week, and I actually took notes on this. I actually wrote this stuff down um, because I don't have as good of a memory as you. I actually had to write this stuff down. Uh, you wrote, and I quote, employers are cutting back hiring. Facebook laid off 11,000 workers. Apple laid off 100 recruiters and froze hiring. That was interesting to me. Because companies always, you know, they, they hire too many people here. They, they need to hire more there. They're, they're always shuffling. And, you know, you grow too fast. You have to cut back. That's normal. But Apple was actually firing the recruiters. They were firing the people that look for workers. They weren't just firing workers. They were firing the people that hire workers. So that suggests that this may be rough for a while. Yeah, maybe they did a bad job hiring people. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe that's just it. Like, like you yeah. hire too many people. This, this is it. You're, you're done, brother. But uh, I, I found that to be particularly sobering. I, I it's not only are you, are you laying off you know, a huge number of people, you're laying off the people that hire people, which suggests so it, that this it, is not it, turning around. Yeah, so, so what <laughs> we can take that for that is those companies probably have more visibility into their earnings over the next couple of quarters. They realize that profits aren't going to be, you know, what they previously expected, and they need to improve margins. And the, the easiest way to do that is you reduce headcount. The other thing I would note to that is that, you know, I think for the last 10 years, we've been thinking about artificial intelligence and the impact it's going to have on blue collar jobs, you know, so the idea would be that we create this semi autonomous or fully autonomous uh, truck 
and we don't need 3 million truckers overnight, right? The irony is that one of the quickest kind of low-hanging fruit uh, problems that the new AI that's come out solves is computer programming. So like, I don't know any coding language at all. I mean, I, I speak like, uh, <laughs> you know, Russian better than I speak like Java or anything like that. And I don't speak Russian at all, but you can go on chat GPT and it can write the entire program app for you. And I was, I was listening to this developer who was talking about how it used to take him like two days to convert an application from one programming language to another. Now it just takes a couple of clicks. So I think what you're going to see and is- And that's like, only going to get better, by the way. That's only going to get better, but then it's going to allow existing engineers, the good ones, developers, to do more with less, to not need huge teams of engineers anymore, which a lot of that has been outsourced. You know, like instead of, if you have a business, instead of hiring all your engineers in the United States, you outsource a lot of work to India and other places where they've got great programmers, but they you can pay them a lot less. Now it's like, you can just let OpenAI do it. So- you know, I think that 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 is all part of like the tech shakeout, which is going to make these companies become a lot more lean and mean. I think over the next year, couple of years yeah. too. I mean, not not. I think this is going to be a trend that can, continues. It's kind of part of that story of, of shakeout. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of that, now Adam, one can be a fan of football teams or rock bands, and one can also be a fan of stock rating systems. I don't know that I was the first user of your, your stock power rating system, but I was I was definitely there at the beginning, and I've I've used it pretty pretty well religiously ever since. Um, love the thing. Like you, you have this systematic way of rating every stock in our universe by the factors that you have proven actually matter, and so you can break this down by sector. You can slice it and dice it in a number of ways. You know, kind of looking at, at your data, like, what have you seen? Like, what is your, your your rating system shown uh, as going on in tech world right now? Yeah, it's interesting because I developed this rating system well before COVID, and I was able to see how a lot of the big tech growth tech names did really, you know, rated well in 2021 and, and uh, kind of foresaw some of the rallies there. But it's been interesting to see the sea change happen. Um, and this is really why I feel like um, our audience needs to follow someone like myself and Ian and Mike Carr. And, and please come to Mike Carr's uh, presentation um, because really the devil is in the details. I and mean, everybody kind of has a sense that tech got ahead of itself, but tech is not one monolithic sector where everything is the same. Some tech is purely uh, a social platform and uses ad revenue. Some tech actually manufactures things. Um, some tech helps industrial production uh, be more efficient. So tech is not one homogenous thing. Um, if you look at what happened- I'm so in glad you brought that up, by the way. Yeah, I mean, everybody just says tech yeah. and it's, it's like so it's one thing. It's so different than it was 20 years ago when it just yeah. said tech, you know, that was just semiconductors and PCs, yeah. Exactly. And like, if you look at 2022, I mean, you saw a lot of the, um, a lot of the kind of whiffs of the dot-com era, you know, companies that were consumer discretionary stocks like Carvana is basically an online, you know, it was basically a, a used car a lot, but they claim to be a technology company. Uh, WeWork claimed to be a technology company, but they were just a real estate and leasing company. Um, you know, a firm subleasing, be... by the way, not, not, not even a real leasing company, a subleasing <laughs> exactly. Over, company, overpriced yeah. leasing company, by the way. I don't know <laughs> exactly. if you ever try to look at an office set of WeWork. Yeah. So some of those excesses have already been washed out, you know, 80 to 90 percent uh, losses in, in the past year or so. Um, but then the other side of tech, I mean, big tech, you know, very, very profitable companies, the most valuable companies of the last decade, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Netflix, Tesla, more recently. 
I mean, those are also companies that I don't believe are going to get completely destroyed and, and go by the wayside, by the way of dinosaurs or the dodo bird, but they are the other thing you have to look at is the price you're paying for their future earnings. Okay. So my six factor rating model looks at um, momentum, size, volatility, value, quality, and growth. And the interesting thing about the technology sector, like if you take out all the individual stocks out of XLK, the spider technology sector ETF, uh, it actually rates number one on growth because a lot of that is backward looking. Um, so, you know, they have definitely the, the market leading growth and quality as far as their profit margins and their, their cash on the books versus debt. But if you look at the valuations, uh, XLK, the technology sector ETF rates the worst out of every single sector on uh, valuation metrics, whether it be price to earnings, price to book, price to cash flow. So really you have to ask yourself, you know, yes, I want um, a stake in Google's earnings ahead, but what what multiple am I willing to pay for that stake? Or is there a better opportunity elsewhere to get? I mean, a dollar of earnings is a dollar of earnings. It just a lot of it matters whether it, A, is it durable? Can you expect the sustainability of those earnings, uh, that dollar of earnings? But two, what's the price you're paying for it? So that's really why I say the devil's in the details. You don't just want to go out and short everything tech or that it seems to be tech. Um, but if you like, watch Mike's presentation, he's going to show you what pockets of tech and, and actually how to play it um, you know, specifically. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that is a very, very good point. You know, this year has not been off to necessarily a, a rough start. You know, 2020 was, or sorry, 2022 was rough, but 2023 thus far has been kind of a mixed bag. It kind of brings up the topic of the, uh, trader language is always so colorful, the dead cat bounce. And Mike, I know you. This, this is not PC, is by the way. This is not PC at all. This, I, please do not let the SPCA <laughs> or nobody try know this about this. <laughs> please, nobody try this at home. I, I'm, I'm doing this in Peru. That, that would even be frowned here, where it's things are a bit more libertine. But anyway, uh, Mike, tell us a little bit about the uh, the dead cat bounce. Like, what what, what is that? Are, are we experiencing one now? Like, like, what's what's the story with that? So I learned about that term from an old floor trader who was retired by the time I met him, and he couldn't even spell PC. So this is like the <laughs> tamest story I could share with you about him. Um, and, you know, he just he would love talking about the dead cat bounce. And he still had an office down near the exchange, and he would look over across the street at an old building there and say, you know, if you go up to the top roof there and you throw a dead cat off the roof, when it hits the ground, it's going to bounce, still going to be dead. So it's going to fall again. And that's the trade. You're looking for what, you know, you, the stock is dead, basically. And you throw it off the roof, it hits the ground, it bounces, it's going to go lower. You want to take that shakeout trade when it's in that bounce phase and catch it for the next leg down. And that's the whole challenge, but you're just looking for the dead cat part of it. And it's important yeah, we're, to understand- We're looking to catch that yeah. cat in midair. Yeah. <laughs> but it's important the to understand the mechanics of like why that happens and why it's almost so obvious that a lot of these like heavily beaten stocks have these incredible bounces. I mean- and Mike, you can, or Adam, you can probably explain like the whole idea of, you know, the 20% the of the float being short and all of a sudden it goes in the other direction and you get like a short-term short squeeze, but the reality of the stock hasn't necessarily changed. It's just the the sentiment and the how easy it is to go borrow the stock has changed. Um, so there can be a lot of technical aspects to the move in the stock 
that are very violent, uh, more so than anything changes with the company. Yeah, a lot of it's inside baseball, but it's a lot of it's flows. I mean, you have short sellers who got in early that maybe want to book a 50 or 100% gain. And they so they start buying back shares of stock uh, kind of all at the same time. And that will put a bid under stocks. Uh, and then if, if that move goes on long enough, the short sellers who kind of got in late at the bottom, they're suddenly... Uh, a little more more leveraged, and they're they're looking at uh, losses. So they're they're buying to cover on mm -hmm. on a short tight stop, and that can make that bounce go further. But yeah, the idea is that that on the fundamentals, the the stock price is either a zero or a much much lower than it ought to be. And uh, we talked at the opening of this talk about how the timing of getting into uh, shorts is so important uh, because you know stock prices tend to fall more fall more quickly than they climb and those if you don't catch those moves uh, quickly enough then you, you've you've missed it um so again that's really why you want to follow somebody like Mike who can has the the detailed expertise on which stocks are most likely to fall and the, the exact timing and the vehicle on how to play them i mean shorting stock can be risky if you do it the wrong way it can be very risk risk limited uh if you do it the right way so there's different ways to do it mm -hmm. yeah and about that I would say, again, if you haven't gotten the link yet, I'm going to put the link down here. You really do want to join us for, for Mike's presentation on Thursday. Um, I'll be there watching. Um, this, this is really one of the most, uh, this is, of all the things I've been looking forward to you know, starting this year, I, I really think this is, this is it. Like, this is something I, I think is really going to be a fantastic opportunity in what could be a really difficult market otherwise. So moving on. Let's move on to the next section here. This is also where the hilarity began. So I mentioned that uh, I have become my parents when it comes to tech. We, we actually put out a poll last week to our readers that said, are you bullish or bearish on drumroll Tesla? This is where it gets fun. We didn't actually give them the option to write bullish or bearish on the poll. It came out as yes or no. So are you <laughs> bullish or are you bullish or bearish on Tesla? Yes or no. So we interpreted that as yes being bullish, no being bearish. I, I that may be wrong. If I have misrepresented anyone's views, I will buy you a drink next time we have an in-person event. But let me let me share my screen again. Where are you? Here you are. What are they drinking, Peru? Pisco sours? Is that the uh the Pisco, yeah, Pisco sour, sour is uh is is a good cocktail, but uh if we are passing those around, I do recommend you stop at one because if you have two, <laughs> you, uh, you may struggle to get home. But anyway, if we interpreted the data in the poll right, we see that a lot of people are still quite bullish on, on Tesla. Uh about 70%, in fact. So Let's let's have some fun with this, guys. Let's uh, stop share. There we go. We're gonna do this Roman Emperor style. You're gonna go around the room and you're gonna say thumbs up or thumbs down. So, Mike, let's start with you. Okay. Do I give a reason or just a thumb? Oh no! Give us a reason for first dramatic. <laughs> I just want to see your thumb, Mike. Yeah, you, you can be cryptic if you want. You you can just you know you can just give us the thumb and then tell us to leave. But uh, yes, we would welcome commentary. Okay, I want to go way back again, and I can't see if my thumb's on screen yet. But um, I want to go. By the way, way Mike was an '80s hand model. Did you guys know that? <laughs> <laughs> So I want to go back to the um, 
early 1900s, and there were an awful lot of car companies, about 300 that were formed. And by the 1950s, there were three. So, you know, the survivors are difficult to find in this sector. Tesla is an early leader in electric cars. Chevy Bolt costs about $26,000 and is now becoming available. Um, you know, Tesla makes a great car. There are pros and cons to, in that price point to the Tesla relative to now the BMW, the Mercedes, all the other brands. Lexus, I saw, just came out with a nice commercial. So I assume they have a nice electric car, too. You no longer have to buy Tesla. It's it, back in the early 1900s, if you wanted a Ford, it was a black Model T because that's what Henry Ford said you were going to get. Well, no, uh, Henry Ford's exact quote was, you can get it in any color you want, so long as it's black. Tesla's similar, lots of limited options there, whereas BMW lets you build it from the frame up, basically. Um, and maybe even a little bit safer. Tesla has those door handles that cannot be opened in an emergency. I'm probably the only naysayer on Tesla in the call, but <laughs> as far as the car goes. Um, there's competition now, and I don't think Tesla's up to the competition, and I'm going to get a ton of emails on this, but come on, if you're paying $70,000 for a car, there's options now. If you're paying $100,000, there's a lot better options right now. So I know Teslas can survive a 250-foot drop off a cliff. We proved that last week. Um, By the way, this is not a dead cat bounce. This is a dead... Tesla bounce? I, I don't I mean, know there's going to be is. a lot of dead cat bounces here in Tesla uh, because <laughs> people 70% think it's bullish in the long run. And they're diehard believers in Tesla. And Tesla has a lot of individual ownership. So you're going to have a lot of dead cat bounces here. But the institutions have been shying away from Tesla a little bit more and more all the time. There was a Tesla that fell off a cliff last week, and uh, it did not bounce, and everybody actually survived. So, from a safety perspective, you couldn't ask for a better outcome. Yeah. Well, Ian, it, it's car. your turn. Ian, are, are you uh, are you thumbs up or are you thumbs down here? Let's let's see that I, fist. I'm going to give it a very weak thumbs up, and the reason I say that is because I think that my time frame and Mike's time frame is arguably different. I think that sure. you know. Probably the, the Elon has brought, so I'll take this step back. Like the worst mistake that Elon made was buying Twitter. Number one, he is weighing into way too much political controversy. That's bad for his brand. He's the entire Tesla brand. They do no advertising. Other car companies spend five to $10 billion a year advertising their cars. Tesla does zero. So I think that was a, a misstep on Elon's part. There's also a worry that he's focusing too much on Twitter and not focusing on delivering the best car. So that I think is, you know, a, a short-term negative for the stock. Obviously there's some technical issues happening in the stock uh, as it continues to break down to lower lows. The positives, I would say the upside here is I think as an asymmetric bet, you probably have 50% downside worst case scenario in the stock going back to, you know, around where the stock was in 2019 before COVID. But I think the upside in this and, and to Mike's point, Yes, Chevy does have a $28,000 car, but Tesla has, uh, one of the reasons why they're in the lead in the EV race is they've already developed all their contracts with their suppliers that other car companies have. So they're be able to gonna scale 
in a lot easier fashion as we move into the EVA to the other companies. Uh, they've got better, they've got a huge head start on the fields. They've got better battery technology. And I do think within the next year, you're going to see them release either a model two or a downsized model three that comes at a $25,000 price point, because let's face it, you know, you cannot mass produce and have everybody drive Tesla cars. If they're 45, $50,000, that's not the price point that not not everybody drives a Mercedes Benz today. So that's not even like Okay, so like a BMW 3 Series is probably going to cost you around $50,000. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing is that I think that the race, the real race is not the EV race. The real race is for full autonomy. And this is a really difficult problem to solve because it's easy to go from 80% to 99% efficient, believe it or not, even though that sounds like a huge jump. The problem is going from 99% to 100% because within that 1%, there's the long tail of seemingly improbable outcomes that could possibly happen when you're operating a fully autonomous vehicle. And I talked to Amber about this earlier. You know, it could be like a hawk flies in the road to eat some carrion in front of you. Like it's not a situation you deal with the other day, or, you know, maybe some somebody shoots a bullet at you, right? Like those are things that happen in very small uh, probabilities in the real world, but they do happen. And the cars have not seen enough of these events to prevent all of them. So there's going to be- You some... know what else they haven't seen? They haven't seen traffic in Lima's Javier Prado Avenue. <laughs> uh, I, 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 the joke around here is like, right. like Tesla, like a Tesla would like, its brain would explode if it right. tried to- Yeah, you got like a here. scooter right in front of you. There's some guy who's got like <laughs> pigs on the back of his scooter and they're falling out in the road in front of you. Rick I know Charles. exactly what you're talking about. So that that's going to be the hard thing. But I think Tesla- is, argue, is is able to solve that first just because they have more real world miles than any other car company. And so I think that is the market start to see some more clarity on that. And Elon's been talking about this for so long, you know, it's like, it's, he's like overpromised, under delivered, but it is going to become a reality at some point. And even if it's not till 2025, investors will buy the stock in anticipation of it because it means that every car you own, which is sitting in the driveway, you know, 99% of its life, not doing anything now becomes something that you can automate and earn money from. So the car automatically becomes more valuable. And I think that's sort of the, um, you know, the best case scenario for Tesla, which makes the stock go back to it and through its old highs as it becomes, you know, taking over the entire $3 trillion or $4 trillion transportation market by the end of the decade. So that is like the the Super Bowl case for Tesla. But I do think that in the short term here, you could see some more downside just because of, you know, the economy is going to recession and then no, no one and what Elon is doing with Twitter is not good for his brand. And, you know, I've, and also he has to sell more stock every time it goes lower to meet a margin call, which is continuing to put more pressure on the stock. So and traders know bullet. that he's selling and nobody wants to be buying if he's selling so that that's structurally an issue for the stock. Exactly. So. And I know I'll give props to Adam because I know he's got a great trade on this. So I'll let him tell us what he thinks bull or bear on Tesla and, and whether or not he's going to keep holding on to it short. All right. Well, with that, Adam. I'll give my thumb. It is a big thumbs down for right now. So I will qualify that by saying <laughs> time frame. I think it's important for our viewers to know that we may have similar views uh, or different views, but the time frame is important. So I'll say that in 2023, for me, Tesla is a big thumbs down beyond 2023. Uh, it's a big question mark because I do see a lot of the long-term potential. But uh, to me, like, so in the summer of 2022, we were clearly in a bear market at that point. A lot of the tech names, um, you know, the, the crappier ones were falling hard. 
And I ran a scan of each of the stocks in the NASDAQ 100 index. And I basically asked the question, what percentage drop would each of these stocks suffer if they fell from their current price to their March 2020 lows? Okay, so let's just assume a thought experiment that everything, all of the gains that stocks made from the March 2020 lows through the top in 2021 at the very end of the year was all just you know hot air and it was all going to evaporate. Which stocks um, stood to lose the most? And at the very top of that screen, the stock that stood to lose the most was Tesla. Okay. Now, it may seem a little bit um, extreme to think that stocks are going to fall all the way to their March 2020 lows, but Amazon, Netflix, Meta Platforms, formerly Facebook, they've already done that. Apple and Tesla have not yet. Uh, so you look at Tesla. I remember um, Cliff Asmus of AQR wrote a note during the dot-com bubble, and he said that everybody's talking about how tech stocks are now cheap because they've fallen 30 or 40 or 50%. Well, that's not how you measure whether something is cheap or not. All it means is that they're less expensive than they were, potentially. Um, and so if you look at Tesla's valuation, first of all, it rates very poorly on my rating model. There are um, basically 87% of all stocks out there are better value than Tesla right now. Uh, but in the summer, uh, when I started recommending this Tesla short, uh, the market cap of Tesla is like greater than the combined market cap of the top five global automakers. And those top five global automakers produce like between 90 and 95 percent of all cars out there. So it's kind of like the sniff test, right? You know, what? why is Tesla worth so many more multiples of its earnings relative to all the other car companies? And part of this goes back to what we've kind of talked about is that this idea that if you call yourself a tech company, then you automatically earn or, 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 or deserve um, or are owed a larger um, price to earnings multiple. And that also comes back to something that uh, Ian just said as far as autonomous vehicles. I think a lot of the bull case for Tesla over the long run is that they'll figure out autonomous driving and more or less become a de facto technology company or a software company rather than just a, a regular car manufacturer. Um, and if you take the other side of that trade, it was what if they never figure out that last mile, that last one or two percent they never quite figure out? Or what if another company does it and sells their software to Ford and GM and Toyota and Honda? So really, I think that it's to, to me, it's a sniff test. I also started seeing after the summer things that were supposed to be bullish for Tesla stock, like they split their stock three to one uh, so that more retail investors could buy the stock at a lower per share price. The stock fell after that. Um, when the Twitter stuff was finally resolved, the, the stock fell after that. Um, and there is this issue of, um, of um, Elon Musk being like a leveraged forced seller at this point. So for me, it's a sentiment trade. Uh, basically, the, the fanatical story that um, put Tesla into these valuation ranges throughout 2020 and 2021, uh, I think is going to be uh, repriced in 2023. I don't think that means that the company goes away. It doesn't mean that the company isn't going to be a leader of the EV space over the next three to five years. But I think that it's, um, it's a short that's ripe for the picking. And I, I do intend to hold it throughout the meat of 2023. You know, I'll weigh in on this too. This is fun. I'm going to join the bears on this one. I actually really like Tesla. I, I really hope the company is successful over the long haul, but I can find no justification for the current valuation now. And I do look at, at Musk's just preoccupation with Twitter and running Tesla. Uh, who, who's running Tesla if every waking hour for Musk is spent trying to salvage Twitter? So I think there will come a time to be a bull on Tesla. We'll, we'll see when that time comes. but. I think uh, uh, it looks yeah, like it, we're going to a lot of friendly letters. Coming. <laughs> we probably will. <laughs> so, that, but that also brings to the point, like you know, Tesla 
it's it, it, the stock, like the ideology is, is very cultish. I mean, if you look at like the top 10 holders, like Korean retail investors are like a large holder. I mean, it's like almost orthodox in Korea that if you have spare money, you invest it in Tesla because it had done so well for them. Well, um, so Ian, I, Ian out of curiosity, this. is that I, I was, you mentioned that the other day out of curiosity, is that permanent money or is, is that leveraged money? Like wh at what point will they sell? Or are you telling me that they will never sell? I think that like people's beliefs are hard to change. Although I do also believe that like price changes sentiment just as well. So it's like, you know, um, I, I'm struggling to think of a real world analogy, but w one other factor about the $25,000 car that I also think that we're sort of overestimating is that if you have a $25,000 car, we know that like the Model S and the Model X are like the high end margins. They have huge gross margins. Are you going to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a car, like a company that also sells a, a cheaper brand? Like at some point, you kind of motorists want to be different. They want to feel different. Like the car that you drive around is sort of your reputation. And it's like if everybody in your neighborhood is driving like a Tesla, do you also want one too? Like you might not like the guy who's like down the block that drives a Tesla and you don't want to be that person. Although I mean, like you could apply it to Jeeps. I feel like everyone in South Florida has a Jeep, so like it doesn't really matter. I don't know if Tesla has that like. <laughs> cool brand cachet so much if it becomes like a mass market vehicle is what i'm saying I think hey, that tesla really could bring out they could make a jeep they could make a tesla jeep someday that would actually be kind of cool yeah but there's a reason that like mercedes-benz doesn't sell a twenty thousand dollar car they could yeah. right and like porsche i mean the entry level is uh, you have to get to a certain well, it's like there's toyota point. there's toyota and there's lexus like when they made lexus what is a lexus a lexus is a fancy toyota but it has a exactly. different brand because it's it's they're going for a different clientele so exactly yeah, audi and volkswagen same thing they're basically built on the same chassis you know yeah like if you buy a volkswagen tiguan it's built on the same platform as the q3 is it's just the Q3 has like much more interior. It's got the Audi symbol on the front, you know? So I worry that when Tesla expands to the lower end of the market, how that's going to impact their higher end brands as well. You know, I'll, we'll say one last thing on Musk. You probably know this, but Robert Downey Jr. of Iron Man fame, you know, from the Marvel comics uh, movies, he actually based, I mean, the, the Tony Stark Iron Man character is obviously from the comic books, but when Downey was like looking for a real life person to imitate, kind of get the mannerisms down, the speech down, like who he modeled the character after, it was Elon Musk. So Elon Musk actually is Iron Man from the Avengers. So it kind of, of goes into that cult that, that surrounds yeah. the, the man and the like, stock. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's funny. It is sort of a unique case, but uh, you know, as they say, Bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. So this should be, it should be interesting watching all this play out. But guys, let's, uh, let's move on to the next section here. We're going to do some, uh, some Q&A. So let me start by saying to our viewers, guys, we really, we really have a lot of value in, in, in this for us. Like we love getting your questions and comments. That really helps us a lot. We love answering. Please, uh, we can put the address down here. Uh, please do write in with questions. We love to answer them. So with that said, let me jump into a few that have come in over the last week. This is actually a comment, and I love this. Ronald writes, my goal for 20, oh, oh let, me, let me preface this. Our question was, you know, what are your goals for the year? What are your goals for 2023? And, you know, how can we help you get there, right? So Ronald writes in to write, my goal is to be as good of a person as my dog thinks I am. Just, just stop it and really 
there is wisdom in that. Like, if we were all as good a people as our dogs think we are, we would live in a utopia. Like we would live mm-hmm. in a perfect world. So anyway, that just, I got to laugh out of that. They must love the uh, fact we're talking about throwing dead cats off buildings though. <laughs> we didn't mention dogs. Thankfully. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the unsaid thing is at least the dead cat is dead at the time it's thrown. That, like no one's thrown a live cat. True. So that's true. It's still morbid, but at least we're not abusing a live animal. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Corey writes, I am hoping to vastly grow our stock portfolio in 2023 so that I have the potential to retire earlier than expected, along with the option for travel and possibly purchase a vacation home. That's what I like to hear, setting the bar high. And that's where we can help. You know, Hopefully we can help get you there with some really solid ideas. Now, moving on to some actual questions. And uh, this is a good one. And uh, Mike, I'll let you uh, take this one. Brian writes, in your Monday letter, you asked us to write goals. My simple one is that I am too apprehensive to take the first step for investing. I want to be confident enough that I can do that first step. So, Mike, yeah, you've been trading a long time. You've seen bull markets. You've seen bear markets. You've seen sideways markets. You've seen every kind of market there is to see. What's your advice to helping someone take that first step? Okay, so let me start. These questions are randomly assigned. So this isn't, you know, I have a great story. So let me take this question. But I do have a great story. Uh, I retired from the military in 2005. And I was going to be trader full time. I had a strategy built out. I'd been trading it for five years, winning year every year. I had a 25 year back test couple of losing years, nothing significant. This is just a great strategy, diversified across futures, uh, provides leverage, provides good income. I retired February 1st, 2005. February 3rd, 2005, this system entered its worst drawdown in history. (laughs) 18 months, which was three times longer than expected based on historical data, much deeper than expected. I had done everything I could. I have read hundreds of books on investing. I have spoken to thousands of people about investing. I did all the prep work just right, and things didn't work out right for me. I used that time. I kept with it. I kept researching. I kept trading, and it worked out. But you're never prepared for what lies ahead. And that's true in investing in life. Um, We're just going to react to whatever comes our way. So I understand the apprehension. The only way out of it is to take action. So if you don't want to put money at risk, paper trade. Get an account at a brokerage that allows paper trading. Take the trades on paper. See how you're doing. See if it's something you can accept. And then after just a few months, set a deadline. I'm going to do this for two months, three months, and then make your decision. So that's my advice. Yeah, and along the same line, start small. You know, like you don't have to start mm-hmm. with huge bets. You know, start at paper trade and then move on to smaller little, you know, small trades, and then just go from there. I think that's some really good advice, Mike. Moving on, uh, Adam. I, I like you for this one. Let's um, let's let's see what Peter has to say. Peter writes. It has turned out to be a perilous time to retire. Inflation rates have been incredibly high for the past couple of years, even higher than what is officially posted in CPI numbers. 
Stocks and so-called risk-free bonds have lost big money. The effect in down markets of stocks and bonds, along with super high inflation, feels like it's getting uh, it feels like getting a good hard one-two punch to the gut and the head. The situation reminds me of a quote from Mike Tyson: "Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face." Adam, I've actually I chose you because you have used that exact same metaphor uh, in the past. I've actually seen you write that. So you're a systematic guy, you know. How do you make a plan and stick to it? Yeah, that's a uh, it's a great quote. It's definitely true. There's also a, um, a jazz and um, R&B and, and uh, blues guitarist called Charlie Hunter, who has an album by that name. Uh, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, I think. So if you're a, a guitar <laughs> uh, fan of uh, music, then uh, look that one up. But I mean, the idea is you're going to get punched in the face regardless by the markets one way or another. Would you rather have a plan or would you rather not have a plan? Um, a lot, Peter talked about a lot of macro um, sea changes that happened over the past 12 months, uh, inflation worse than in 40 years, uh, interest rate hikes more aggressive than in 13 years, the first time in 50 years that stocks and bonds both fell by double digits. Um, and, and really, this is kind of proves a point that a lot of the strategic uh, asset allocation strategies that require you to uh, forecast macroeconomic variables uh, are rife with risk. And the other side of that is if you try to take a more pragmatic, tactical, uh, systematic strategy of making money, whether it's over a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and if that systematic strategy is adaptive, it, it basically allows you to get out of investments that aren't well-suited for that particular environment and into investments that are better suited, um, that's really you know my way of uh, navigating these markets. And that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, you certainly get uh, punched in the face, in the mouth, and the gut uh, a number of times throughout. Uh, you know, all of your trades aren't winners. Um, but if you have a system to fall back on, all you really have to do is know that you've trained for it. You have to kind of absorb that punch and then stay on your feet and keep moving forward. But man, if you had if you had really no game plan or no system for trading, and you just you know every round you went in the ring and and took a hit and decided what to do next without any game plan, I don't know how you'd survive uh, long at all. So that that for me is you know it doesn't make investing. Uh, super easy, but it makes it more simple and more doable, um, just taking a pragmatic, tactical approach. You know, my favorite boxer was always Tyson Fury. The guy was a big, fat guy, not athletic. Like, this guy does not look like a world-class athlete. But that guy could take a punch. <laughs> that guy could take a punch like something out of a movie. So anyway, I digress. Um, Ian, I'm going to give you this last question. Dina writes, I am a lifetime member of strategic fortunes and extreme fortunes. My long-term financial related goals that Banyan Hill can help me achieve are retire by 62 and a half, which is a very precise year, I might add, exactly 62 and a half, not 62 or 63, but hey, we got to have goals, better to make them precise. Uh, purchase a waterfront vacation home and a small boat for exploring and fishing and make a concerted effort to take some profits on the way up. It's that last part I like. So Ian, why don't you give us some general advice on it? W when do you take profits? Like what, uh, how does that work for you? Sure. So first of all, Dina, thanks for writing in. Um, I appreciate that you are a lifetime member of two of my services. And uh, I, I like that question about what you posed, Charles, about, you know, when do you take profits? I think that um, it really depends on your time frame, you know, like, and also depends on like what type of asset class you're trading. So if you're in something like cryptocurrencies, which, you know, can run very quickly, 
uh, I like to take at least my cost basis out of the trade if it's something that's very risky. So if you're in something you bought at 10 and it goes to 20, you know, I like to sell 50% of it and let the less let the rest of it run. Uh, in terms of, I don't think there is like a, a science specifically to take profits. And I think it's really up to each individual in terms of like what your, your risk taking is. But one um, insight and, and one advice I would say is, make sure that you're diversified, whether it be, you know, have some, a portfolio in your fixed income portion, have something in value stocks and growth stocks, all different types of sectors, and then take an assessment every couple of months, you know, what has done best, where am I over allocated, maybe sell. If, if, if one part of your portfolio has gone up significantly, maybe it's time to take profits on that and reallocate something else. One rule of thumb I always use is that if I'm in something that's really risky, and I've had a huge gain in it, I will take it out and put it in the safest thing. So if it's like the riskiest things at the top of the pyramid, and let's say it was like a crypto asset that went up 10X or an NFT, I will sell that and put it back into cash or some type of short-term fixed income instrument because I don't want to give back any of that profit. Um, and so, and then if you reallocate sort of, if, if you take a pyramid approach, put the things that are not as risky back in less risky things, and the things that have gone up that are less risky, you can put more into the risky stuff if that allocation has gone down. So you really want to think about diversification. There's also lots of uh, software out there that helps you with portfolio allocation, which I think is just you know as crucial as picking winners uh, is being properly allocated. Because even Adam said, you know, last year was one of those very rare years when you have both fixed income and stocks going on at the same time. It only happens once every hundred years. It's likely, you know, with, with the new um, worries about structural inflation, we could see a couple more years of this going down the future. But I think in the long run, having some type of balanced 60-40 type portfolio with other room for other asset classes as well uh, is, is the best way to approach the market. Well said. Well, gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. That's going to wrap up the show for this week. I will say to everybody watching and listening, uh, Mike Carr's event is on Thursday. I will repeat, this is something you really don't want to miss. So again, last time, the link is down below. I will be attending, and I hope you will as well. That's going to wrap it up for this week, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks, all.